Hi, it's me, Amanda, again. And as you know, uh, for the last month or so, I've been re-releasing some of my favorite episodes from the past three years of Close Horse. I'm specifically focusing on episodes that I think are going to be the most impactful for new listeners. This week, I wanted to revisit an episode from last year. That's 2022. It's episode 125, Untangling the World of Clothing Rental. Spoiler alert, you'll learn all about this in this episode. My last job before the pandemic was actually launching a new rental platform for a fast fashion company. And while I started my job thinking that I was part of this new, more sustainable way of dressing, well, let's just say that it turns out I was wrong, that it wasn't the panacea, the cure that I thought it would be. You're going to get to hear all of the details of that in this episode. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode featuring Lisa, the owner of Two Big Blondes. That's a Seattle consignment shop that focuses on plus size clothing. And we have a lot to talk about. See you next week. time, and we've talked about it here before, when it was just so easy to sell stuff to people. I'm thinking like 150 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago. If you had it, people would buy it because there weren't very many places to buy things. Everyone shopped local and small because that's just how it was. Sure, Most shopping involved bartering and haggling, which is a personal nightmare for me. But most people made their own clothes and their other household items. And what they did have, they made last for as long as possible. A shopping spree was more like the beginning of the Oregon Trail game, where you just stocked up on, you know, oxen, wagon axles, rations, mm, rations, something like that. Regardless of how accurate the Oregon Trail game was or was not, shopping wasn't a pastime. No one was listing it as a hobby on their OkCupid profile, mostly because neither the internet nor internet dating existed, but also because making a hobby of shopping would have been even more depressing than it is now. I mean, just imagine just going from shop to shop all day, buying rations and wagon tongues and hoarding oxen that you barely use and then donate. (laughs) Donated oxen. I'm here for one. Send one my way. Anyway, the department store arrived on the scene in the late 1800s as the Industrial Revolution changed the way many, many people lived. More people left rural areas and began to work in factories and shops. People made less of their stuff because they were too busy working for someone else. So more shops opened to serve them since they were no longer making the things they needed. At the same time, gift giving became more of a thing, like something you did. You gave gifts to people you 
weren't so close to you, gave a lot of gifts to people all the time. You needed to buy them somewhere, right? The department store, these palaces of consumption, were the first place where one could spend a whole day shopping. They housed everything under one roof, from clothing to fragrances to candy and foods to gloves and books and home goods. It was all there, contained within these buildings that were as ornate and beautiful as the most celebrated churches and cathedrals. As I talk about this, I'm getting so sad and longing for the thrill of a fancy department store versus the ones with stained carpet and empty racks that we've been seeing for so many years now. But back then, the department stores were innovative, like all caps innovative, at selling stuff, at making things more appealing to customers. Because for one, the prices were fixed. There was no haggling for a new pair of silk gloves. One simply paid the price on the tag. What a wild and innovative idea. No, it really was. This idea of the customer is always right, that was born then, creating headache upon headache for all of us, myself included, who have ever worked retail. The concept of satisfaction guaranteed or your money back was also new. Yes, most stores did not have a return policy before the rise of the department store. And these department stores were innovative in the way they tricked customers into spending long periods of time within the four walls of the store, with cafes and nap rooms, reading rooms and art galleries, rooftop gardens, musical entertainment, one could shamelessly spend an entire day inside a Macy's or a Selfridges. The department stores lent a level of prestige and reliability to shopping. And when it was time for the world of retail and shopping to evolve into its next incarnation, department stores were a key component. Yes, it was time for the mall to arrive on the scene. The department stores in their prime anchor locations brought people to the mall. And it also brought them into the corridors between department stores where they found specialty retailers like The Limited and The Gap. And that's how those specialty retailers became the latest innovation in retail. Rather than serving everyone, everything, as the department stores aim to do, these retailers focused on a specific audience, whether it was teenagers, express, young women, the limited, young men, structure, or children like Gymboree or the children's place, it was all there. Was your style more classic and casual? Go to the Gap. More preppy? Check out J. Crew. There was a brand for everyone. Well, in the fine print, as long as they landed into one of a few basic boxes. But customers liked this. They felt special. They gained a sense of identity. Is it sad that people base their identity around brands and retailers? Sure, but we know it happens even now, and it began during this era. The innovation was identity. Soon, these specialty retailers eclipsed the department stores. By the 1990s, 
department stores felt old and stale. It's where your grandma shopped. Brands like Limited, Abercrombie, Victoria's Secret, J. Crew, Gap, Urban Outfitters, they became powerhouses that launched several brands under their vast umbrellas. It seemed that soon they would take over the entire mall. But then the 21st century arrived, and two, two really innovative things arrived on the scene. E-commerce, aka shopping online, and of course, fast fashion. The department stores were so late to the game when it came to e-commerce that they never caught up. They were officially dinosaurs. We saw one department store after another declare bankruptcy, reorganize, and sometimes disappear completely. The specialty brand mega corporations were still going strong, but after the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent recession, they saw more and more of their customers opting for Forever 21, H&M, Zara, and all of their friends. These fast fashion retailers allowed customers to buy a lot of stuff for the same amount of money that would get them maybe one item at the specialty stores. Who was the dinosaur now? Retailers raced one another to the bottom in terms of pricing and deals, trying to keep up. When everybody was at the bottom, they competed to sell every trend before everyone else. This is where that fast part of it came into play. You already know this story because you've been listening to Close Horse, so I'm not going to belabor it here. But by 2018, retailers could see the writing on the wall. It was harder and harder to compete with the fastest fast fashion retailers like Zara, who were literally finishing the garments on boats that were sailing across the Pacific just so they could get clothes into the hands of customers even faster. Meanwhile, the so-called specialty retailers no longer seem to have a special niche at all. Lower and middle-class people look to luxury brands for identity. They weren't getting that from the gap anymore. And the fastest fast fashion was there to fill in all the voids in their shopping routine. Ironically, of course, retailers like Zara, the fastest of the fast fashion brands for a long time, would find themselves antiquated and threatened by 2020 or so. Hashtag Sheen. But that's not what this episode is about. No, this is an episode about something else. This is an episode that begins in late 2018, when the big retailers, by now fast fashionified and flailing, were looking for a new way to rake in those profits. And there was a new idea emerging, something that had been around for a few years in a specialized way, but was prime for a wider presence. Customers had eco-anxiety. Simultaneously, they were addicted to a steady stream of new clothes and new reasons to buy new clothes. Where was the delta between eco-consciousness and a new outfit for every Instagram post? I've got it. It was clothing rental. Finally, a new way for these worn out, slightly panicked retailers to cash in by adding clothing rental to their business. What could go wrong? (laughs) As you probably guessed, there'll be a lot. We wouldn't be talking about it otherwise, right?
Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that derives a strange amount of joy from explaining complicated things. I'm your host, Amanda, and today in this special You Only Get to Hear Me, that's me, Amanda, talk episode, I'm going to break down clothing rental. You've all been asking for it. I've been really hesitant to do it, but I finally feel ready. We'll try to answer the question, is rental a sustainable option? Like a whole lot of things we discuss around here, it's complicated. And that's why it's a whole episode. <laughs> so before we dive in, I have to give you a bit of a disclaimer. Remember that Remember that job I lost during the pandemic? You know, the one that let me go, I don't know, like two weeks into the pandemic, gave me two weeks of severance and cut off my health insurance just a few days later? Yep, that one. Well, my employer was a new rental service that launched in mid-2019. Great timing for a pandemic, right? In addition to literally picking out the entire launch assortment and onboarding the brands, I also did a ton of industry research in the early months of the brand before it actually launched as we worked as a team to figure out the best product to buy, what people like to rent, how our competitors worked, and of course, how we could do better. I'm not going to talk about my specific experiences at that job because, of course, they made me sign a severance agreement saying that I would never publicly nor privately say anything negative about the company. Instead, I'm going to be speaking to the research and conversations with vendors and other experts that I had in that pre-launch research period. I'll also be talking about things I learned after I lost that job via all sorts of research and reading. I will say this, I came into the rental industry with the idea that it was more sustainable. In fact, it was the sustainability angle that made it an appealing position for me. My job before that had been my worst job ever, working for a very toxic, quote, feminist retailer in the Pacific Northwest. After I left that job, I was coping with a lot of PTSD, just completely decimated my self-esteem, and I was exhausted. I vowed that I would never work for another company ever again, but then this company reached out to me. They knew my work well, they knew about my, quote, legendary taste, and they wanted to talk to me about this new sustainable approach to fashion. I love style. I love helping people feel their best, and I'm obsessed with this planet. I thought that rental was the right path for me. Perhaps finally, I could find meaning and purpose outside of collecting a paycheck from my career. So I took the job. Dustin and I packed up our cats, our house plans, all of our weird vintage possessions. There are so many. And we moved across the country to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was a big and scary move. I had a lot of reservations about the whole thing. I was super, super anxious. But the idea that I could be a major part of a new sustainable movement, well, that made it all worthwhile. Pretty rapidly, I realized everything I thought I knew about rental was wrong. And I realized that the rental industry was merely riding a huge wave of greenwashing.
Let's recap what we know about clothing consumption in this decade, the facts that get us depressed in every episode. (laughs) In the last 15 years or so, the global production of clothing has doubled. Meanwhile, the average number of times garments are being worn has decreased by more than a third. And on average, Americans buy 70 new articles of clothing each year. And yes, that's an average. So if you've been sitting there saying, and I know at least one of you is, my telepathy is picking it up. You're saying, well, I've been wearing the same clothes since 1995, and therefore I've bought zero new garments last year. Well, that just means that someone else bought 140 garments. That's a simplification, of course, but it's an important illustration of where clothing consumption is right now. If 70 is the average, then there are just as many people buying more than 70 garments as there are people buying less than 70 garments. Shopping has become a pastime for some and a mere habit or routine for others, but no matter how you slice it, we have become very accustomed to wearing a new outfit as often as possible. Influencers, social media, and retailers as a whole have created and reinforced these like rules around wearing something new for every event, every photo, every day of our lives. The concept of outfit of the day, hashtag OOTD, has never been about wearing your favorite outfit again and again on different days. It's been all about wearing a whole different outfit, accessories and shoes included, as often as possible. In fact, I would say it's time for us to take back the hashtag OOTD and show those same outfits we've been wearing over and over again. That's a different episode. Maybe it's not. Who's in? Let's do this. Anyway, back to this. Many people consider an outfit old if it's been worn more than a few times. Yes, we have social media to thank for this. I like to imagine that fast fashion has been sending a steady stream of edible arrangements to Instagram world headquarters as a thank you for all the sales the app has indirectly and now directly driven over the years. And I want, it's really important here to call out, I have to say this, it's not like the, you know, the entry level edible arrangement that comes in a mug and it's like 60 bucks. We're talking the full on, it's in a vase, a vase, you pick your own pronunciation there, and it's got chocolate dipped strawberries and pineapple that is cut out in the shape of apples, then dipped in chocolate. It's got balls and flowers made of cantaloupe and honeydew and who knows what else, and it costs at least $150. There is a steady stream of those going to Instagram World Headquarters every day from all the fast fashion retailers. And you know why? Because edible arrangements are the best gift (laughs) and the most elegant one. (laughs) This episode is not brought to you by Edible Arrangements, but if you're from Edible Arrangements and you're listening to this, please give me a call. I would love to take your ads on the show. <laughs> if only for a lifetime supply of chocolate-dipped pineapple. Anyway, for all of our addiction to new clothing, none of us are monsters, right? We care about the planet. We care about its people. Heck, we are the people of this planet. We don't want our clothing to destroy it. Imagine saying, well, you had to have that new outfit for your birthday month. The planet's dead. Good job. No, of course not. That's that's not who we are, right? Yet the thought of changing our habits, 
of wearing less new clothes, of possibly being chuggy or not put together or whatever it is that we're all worrying about, well, we're scared or at least highly reluctant to give up the lifestyle of clothes, clothes, and more clothes. Well, don't worry because rental is here to save the day, or at least that's been the message for the past few years. Clothing rental began with a focus on special occasion wear. We'll get into that. But as retailers saw a new revenue stream, a way to hold on to some more profit, it began to take on a new form of wearing new clothes every day for every occasion. Never ever have to change anything on your end while minimizing your impact on the planet. That sounds pretty great, right? In fact, it kind of sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Last summer, a Finnish study published by Environmental Research Letters shocked everyone in the sustainability community. It tracked five different ways of consuming a pair of jeans. And I want to say, even though I'm a non-jean wearer, that I appreciate the choice of jeans for this study because they consume a lot of water and chemicals to create. I do not think it is hyperbole to say that jeans may be the most impactful garment we wear when it comes to energy, water consumption, water waste, and overall impact on the workers making, dyeing, and distressing our genes and or living near the facilities where all of this happens. Please go check out the series of Clothes Horse episodes about denim with denim designer Michelle from the very early days of this podcast. I still review those occasionally just to remind myself of what denim is and how it impacts our world. But going back to the study, it examined five different ways of consuming a pair of jeans. Wearing them and then throwing them away, wearing them for longer than average before throwing them away, reselling them, recycling them, and renting them. In each scenario, they calculated the global warming potential, which refers to how greenhouse gases are emitted through the life cycle of the genes. They considered everything from manufacturing and transportation to washing and disposing of them. The big shocker here was this finding, that renting clothes had the highest climate impact of all, even higher than just throwing clothes away. I also just want to add here that recycling clothing, the actual act of disassembling clothing and using machines, chemicals, and energy to turn it into materials, fabric, and then clothing, also has a very high climate impact because it involves a lot of transportation, water, energy, and chemicals. And even worse, it creates the illusion of a guilt-free way to buy tons and tons of clothes wear them a few times, and then dispose of them. It's all about this illusion, which we're going to touch on a lot when it comes to rental. But in general, greenwashing is built upon illusion, right, of creating this illusion that's appealing to us. Anna Hari, who is one of the co-authors of this paper, told Fast Company, quote, Recycling is an important part of a sustainable future, and we encourage customers to keep investing in it, but it cannot replace reducing consumption. The way we have been consuming clothing in the fast fashion era will never, ever, ever be sustainable. Going back to that average of 70 new garments each year, 
that's a new piece of clothing every five days. Do we really need to acquire something new that often? Ultimately, this study, along with so much other research, has indicated that there is only one path forward for reducing the impact of our clothing, and that is, surprise, surprise, wearing your clothing longer, more often, shopping secondhand first, and reselling or thoughtfully rehoming your own clothing when you're done with it because it no longer fits you or your life has changed or you have changed. No one is expecting you to wear the same clothes your entire life or wear ugly, ill-fitting clothing that you hate. You don't have to give up expressing yourself via your wardrobe, but there are smarter, more sustainable ways of doing that. Of course, those ways will involve changing up our habits by changing the way we shop and where we shop. And these two things, you know what? They frighten the fashion retailers who are part of an entire industry built on overproduction and overconsumption. The industry knows that it has a major problem on its hands. And while I'm sure there are many individuals working within the industry who see the environmental writing on the wall, there are many more in the industry, mostly at the top, who are focused on a different kind of writing, and that's in their P&L statements, profit and loss statements. As, or more like if, customers truly care about sustainability and make these changes in their habits and where they shop, guess what will happen? Sales of new clothing will decline sharply. And the majority of retailers are already feeling the squeeze of a fast fashion era of oversaturation of players like Shein who promise ridiculous amounts of cheap, trendy clothing on demand at rock bottom pricing. That is why greenwashing exists and why we're seeing it become the norm rather than the exception in brand marketing. Let's take a moment to review the definition of greenwashing. It is the strategy of conveying a false impression or providing completely misleading information about the environmental impact of a product or brand. It is an unsubstantiated, meaning unproven claim of, I hate this term, but it was the best one I could come up with, eco-friendliness that creates the illusion of guilt-free consumption. If you don't like the word guilt, you can say impactless consumption. The goal here is twofold. One is to create a sense of responsibility and ethics in a profoundly unethical and reckless industry. And the second is to convince you to buy a little bit more because the things you are buying are magically good for the planet. I'm not going to go too hard into greenwashing here because we've all talked about it ad nauseum here on the podcast and on social media, but I do want to remind you of one of the most common greenwashing strategies. It's co-opting words that are essential elements of the sustainability movement and using them in bad faith to mislead consumers. Sustainable itself it's actually a great example of a word that has been essentially ruined by all of the inaccurate, misleading ways it has been used by so many industries. Another concept and word that is being used more and more as a retail buzzword, rather than its true origins as a model for a sustainable ethical economy, is circularity. See also circular fashion and circular economy. 
Right now, much of our economy, including the fashion industry, is linear. Picture this line ahead of you with points along it. Raw materials are used to make clothing. The next point, we buy and wear them. The last point, we toss them in the trash. Sure, some of those clothes get reworn, but not that many. And furthermore, we've been moving through the points on this line much faster over the last 15 years as we wear clothes less often before tossing them. The circular economy requires keeping clothing in circulation for a lot longer. Clothes are created, we buy them, we get the maximum amount of wear out of them before passing them on to the next wearer via resale, thoughtful rehoming, upcycling, etc. When these clothes have given all they can to the world, they are recycled into new clothing, reducing the need for new material creation. Sounds pretty great, right? Well, the industry has a few problems with the true, genuine, circular economy. For one, fabric and material recycling just isn't there yet. Because for so long, it's been cheaper to make brand new materials than recycle existing ones. So no one has been funding recycling technology, especially textile recycling technology, in any meaningful way. Next, and this is the big one, the industry in its full fast fashionified glory cannot exist without overproduction and overconsumption. So if we wear our clothes longer, if we shop secondhand, what happens to the industry? How do all these brands and retailers stay in business? Let's talk about that for a moment because I get this question a lot. And while I'm sure sometimes that question is asked in a good faith way, like genuinely wanting to know what happens when we stop buying so much, I often feel that it's being asked in a bad faith way as a defense of overshopping, as a means of getting an excuse to continue doing what we're doing. Okay, so what happens if we buy less? Well, some businesses may go under or at least scale back, at least initially. And yes, people will lose jobs. Garment workers may lose jobs. Let's think about that for a moment. Right now, the industry is built upon producing and buying a ton of stuff at the lowest prices. The conceit being that if you need a lot of new clothes all the time, you need them to be as cheap as possible so you can afford to buy them often and all the time, right? But what if we needed less new clothing and we wanted it to stay in the system longer? Then clothing could be more expensive. It would have to be to make it higher quality and longer lasting. Like no more plastic zippers that break two wears in, right? One of the aspects of the as many clothes as possible, as cheaply as possible status quo is that factories and therefore workers, have been squeezed on pay to keep those prices low. And it's not just the workers making our clothing, but also those who are making the fabric, dyeing and printing it, creating the trims like zippers, buttons, labels, and so on. Everyone has been paid less and less. Retailers have even shifted their supply chains to countries that regulate labor less and have a lower minimum wage, if one at all. To be clear, while garment work is skilled labor and the work itself is important and essential, it is not a good job. We're talking 12, 14, 16-hour shifts, 
six or seven days a week for low wages that could never qualify as a living wage. We're talking dirty bathrooms, abusive conditions, and wage theft that runs rampant. In some cases, we're talking about forced labor and child labor, all to keep prices low, 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 and super profitable for the select few at the top of the industry. This is not a good job. Fast fashion has not done a favor to garment workers. These human beings work and work with little to show for it because they still live in poverty. And I'll also just add, I don't think that fast fashion has done much that's good for us consumers either. We get a lot of clothing that isn't that great, that makes us feel bad, that makes us feel like we need to buy more, that takes away our financial security, that becomes a burden to us. Oh, and it's destroying the planet we live on. Seems like the status quo isn't a good deal for anyone. Once again, as consumers, we are perhaps accidentally giving our consent to this abusive, exploitive system because we expect low prices. But what if we weren't so hung up on that because we didn't need a steady flow of new garments? What if they could be twice as expensive? So rather than expecting a dress to be $50 so we could buy many of them, we would be willing to pay $100 or even $150 because we would be buying significantly less new dresses. What if garment workers could be paid a living wage? To be honest, most experts say paying a living wage to garment workers would only raise the prices we pay for something by 1% to 4%. But imagine if we could do better than that. And yes, with less clothing being made, less people would need to make it. But maybe they could be working in the textile recycling industry. Or what if they didn't need to deal with clothes at all and instead could be teachers, writers, activists, artists, stay-at-home parents, interior designers, musicians. The list goes on and on. Why do these people have to expect that garment worker is the best they can do? The world would change if we bought a lot less clothing and in so many ways. Shutting down the industry for a year would have the same impact as grounding all international flights and stopping all maritime shipping for a year. I'm not suggesting that, a whole year without clothes being made. But instead I'm saying, what if we cut the production in half, going from 100 billion garments each year to 50 billion? That's still plenty of clothing. The thing is... This kind of change is scary for retailers because overconsumption is built into their model. It's hard for them to see a way out of it. And especially for the publicly traded companies, reduced sales and profits, that's a hard pill to swallow. So here comes the greenwashing of circularity. Rather than making true efforts toward reducing the impact of the industry, brands are co-opting elements of the circular system and turning them into marketing stories. Like, instead of truly investing in development of clothing recycling technology, they're bragging about the small percentage of recycled fabrics, like microscopic percentage of recycled fibers used to make a garment. Never mind that the majority of the fabric is brands making new fibers or Rather than shifting their entire supply chain into processes and equipment that use less water and energy, they're bragging about one collection where the production of a few pieces uses less water. And of course, they are never talking about the workers involved in any of this. Rental and now secondhand 
are part of the circular washing that retailers are doing. Rental and secondhand are a great way to keep their hands in their customers' pockets without having to make any larger systemic or ethical changes. If you're losing a customer on the brand new clothing side of the business, move them over to the rental side and continue taking their money. Or even better, make a profit selling them new clothing, then take another cut when they resell the clothing they bought from you on your resale platform. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a -a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. 
Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play, not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. By the time I took that job for the new rental platform in 2018, the rental industry was getting a lot of buzz in both the business and fashion press. Renting clothing, it's nothing new. Renting formal wear, specifically suits and tuxedos, has been around for a very long time. Any of you who went to the prom know what I'm talking about. Some of us have even rented uniforms for work. In 2004, Lloyd Lapidus and Greg Pippo, two friends who definitely did not have a background in fashion, launched Bag, Borrow, or Steal, a service that rented luxury handbags, sunglasses, jewelry, and other accessories. You might recognize this service from its cameo appearance in the first Sex and the City film, where Jennifer Hudson shows off a steady stream of rented designer purses before being gifted, and this is no exaggeration here, the ugliest purse I've ever seen. It was a Christmas gift from Carrie Bradshaw and honestly, a betrayal. <laughs> In 2009, two Harvard Business School graduates, both named Jennifer, Jennifer Hyman and Jennifer Fleiss, launched Rent the Runway. This was the first clothing rental platform 
specifically for women. I won't go too much into that story because it's often tossed out there as a hashtag girl boss success story. And you know how I feel about that kind of stuff. The platform began as an option for renting special occasion wear, mostly. And to be honest, that's an idea I can get behind. In fact, I would love to normalize renting bridesmaids' dresses, formal wear, even wedding dresses. So many things that only get worn one time by design. So seven years into business, in 2016, Rent the Runway debuted their unlimited plan. I'm going to get to that later. Really shifting away from rental as a once in a while service to a part of daily life. A few years earlier, 2012 to be exact, La Tote arrived on the scene, offering the opportunity to rent everyday wear from work clothing to workout clothing. Another company, Castle, jumped into the mix to offer this kind of everyday clothing rental, both with its own in-house services, Gwinny Bee, which was plus-size clothing. I don't know why I'm saying past tense. It's still around. And Haverdash, which was targeted towards young women. But they also offered these brand-exclusive rental services from Express, Ann Taylor, New York and & Company, and many others. American Eagle was about to offer rental, I think via the Castle platform, and it was rumored that Abercrombie was thinking about it. Lots of smaller rental startups were popping up too. You know how everyone has been talking about resale and launching their own platforms for it for the past few years? Well, rental was being cast as the future of fashion in 2018. Let's go back to that study that determined that renting clothing has a higher climate impact than just throwing away clothing. Wow, that's so depressing to say out loud. Well, renting generated the highest amount of emissions because of all the transportation involved. Let's just think about that for a minute using a dress as an example. So first, the dress is made most likely overseas and shipped across the ocean via boat or airplane. To be honest, most likely that dress was transported via air and not the ocean. Before that, even before it got to the airport, it was transported via truck to the airport or a port if it got on a ship. So it's already a few rides in, right? Next, the dress was trucked from the port when it arrived in the United States to the rental company warehouse. And most likely, there was another step in between at the vendor's warehouse, all of these stops are pretty standard for all brand new clothing, whether it's rented or bought. Next, the dress was shipped out to the first renter. Still, you know, pretty in line with standard online shopping. But then it was shipped back to the warehouse where it was laundered and then shipped out to another customer. Then back to the warehouse, back out to another customer, etc., 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 this is a lot of transportation and a lot of fuel and emissions for one dress. Now, this could change if rental companies started delivering all of their orders via electric vehicles, but that would really mean that the shipping carriers like USPS and UPS would have to shift their fleets. I don't know if you know right now, but there's a lawsuit against the USPS for opting for gas-powered vehicles over electric. Ultimately, whether these services elect to use gas or electric-powered vehicles, it's out of the control of these rental companies in the first place. Furthermore, the amount of times a garment is rented or transported could be reduced based on the model of service the rental companies offer. For example, for years, Rent the Runway offered an unlimited plan, meaning that customers could wear something once, 
send it back on its own, and order something to replace it in the next few days. I want to say that the service gave the customer the opportunity to have four garments in rotation at all times. And most customers, because this is how we are as humans, wanted to get the most out of their subscription. There was a lot of talk in the Facebook groups of reducing the cost per wear, which meant, of course, renting as much as possible. I mean, if you've ever been to a buffet but skipped all your meals that day leading up to it, then you understand what I'm talking about here. So the typical Rent the Runway customer would have one to two items at home, one on the way back to the warehouse and another on the way from the warehouse to their home at all times. On average, and this was the average, remember what we said about averages, there's always someone who's getting more, there's always someone who's getting less, right? Customers were receiving 16 garments per month, sometimes more depending on where they live, shipping times, etc. But that would mean even with that average, 32 deliveries back and forth each month. And that's that's a lot of rides in trucks. And most of these garments were shipping on their own. In the early months at my rental job, the burgeoning rental industry was just getting so much press. And of course, we devoured it at work because our project was for the most part top secret. Very few people on our own corporate campus knew what we were working on. There was one article that made the rounds of our tiny team and was dissected in great detail over a period of a few days. I haven't been able to track it down, which frustrates me to no end, but it has stuck with me for the years since I've read it. There was a Rent the Runway customer who lived in New York City. Customers in Manhattan at that time had the option of dropping off their items at at special drop-off spots, which sped up the entire turnaround of new items and probably, to be honest, reduced the carbon footprint of shipping back and forth, right? So it's not a bad idea. And this customer was making daily visits to this Rent the Runway drop-off location in Soho so that she could have a new item almost every day. In fact, she had gamed the system so well that on like Sundays when there was no shipping, she didn't care because she would have picked up two garments the day before. It was, I mean, this is human nature. Once again, we've all skipped lunch in anticipation of the buffet dinner, right? So yeah, this customer felt that she needed 25 to 30-ish new items of clothing each month. And she mentioned, (laughs) this is the part that's really stuck with me. She mentioned how she was rekindling, that was the verb, relationships with old friends and acquaintances who lived near the Rent the Runway drop-off location so she could use her time more efficiently by working socialization into her clothing obsession. Imagine being one of those friends who she had rekindled with and reading this. That's so hurtful. great moment to talk about the financial model of rental. Like, how does a company make a profit off of renting clothing? I'm going to tell you this. It's not going to surprise you. Launching and running a rental company is not cheap. You can't just start a rental service without a ton of capital. Capital meaning money and like a mountain of it. In fact, Rent the Runway I would consider one of the oldest, most established, hugest, if you will, rental companies. 
has received about $400 million in venture capital over the years. The company also went public in October 2021. But guess what? Despite all of that money flowing in, a huge customer base, so much press, Rent the Runway has never turned a profit. Latote has also never been profitable. So what do you need to start your own rental company other than a mountain of money? You need a laundry facility, including industrial washing machines and dry cleaning equipment, as well as machines to steam and press clothing. And yeah, that stuff is expensive. You also need sewing machines and other repair equipment. You need a huge warehouse space for storing all of the clothing. Even more, you need a technological infrastructure that allows you to track where each individual garment is. If you've ever rented clothing, you've noticed that each garment has a tiny barcode often attached to the brand label. That's the unique item number for that garment, allowing the rental service to scan it and track it along its journey through the warehouse, out to the customer, through laundry, and back into the warehouse. Those barcodes, the system that tracks them, and the equipment for attaching those barcodes, well, that costs some major money too. It goes without saying that you'll also need a good website with good functionality that connects to the warehouse inventory so customers can always get up-to-the-minute accurate information about what is available to them. You'll also need a huge staff for receiving, sorting, cleaning, barcoding, inspecting, and shipping clothing. Don't forget about customer service because things always go awry. Oh, the flow of clothing in and out of the warehouse is so complex with a lot of touch points along the way. A new garment is received, unpacked and unwrapped, barcoded, hung, and then added to inventory. A worker finds each garment in the warehouse to pack an order, while another worker packages up the order and ships it out. Meanwhile, other workers receive the returned rentals. They scan them back into the warehouse, sort them by laundry needs, and send them over to the laundry team, who washes, dry cleans, presses, steams, etc. Then the items go to inspections, where more workers inspect for any quality issues like holes, pilling, missing buttons, broken zippers, and stains. Basically, all of the things that can go wrong with clothing. If an item needs more laundry assistance or repairs, it is sent off to the repairs department. If an item passes inspection, well, workers move it to the warehouse where it will hang until the next time it is rented. That's a very simple version of this process, and yet, wow, so many workers needed to do those jobs, and that costs, that costs a lot of money. Imagine a model like Rent the Runway's Unlimited plan where stuff is just constantly moving in and out of the warehouse. That's a lot of workers. That's a lot of money. You also need inventory and a lot of it with steady newness arriving. Because the thing about rental, just like regular shopping, is that customers are always looking for something new and trendy. So you need to have new arrivals constantly. And what if you already had access to brand new inventory at the cost of making it, rather than the much higher and usually twice as high cost of buying it wholesale? That could make this a whole lot more affordable, which is why 
fast fashion retailers are at an advantage for starting their own rental platform because they often have the capital to make the investment in laundry facilities and technological systems along with access to super cheap new clothing. Once again, rental is a great way for fast fashion brands to keep their hands in their customers' pockets without having to make any larger systemic or ethical changes. And sure, they'll have to invest in all of this stuff, but it will protect their business from any declines in business when we all get sick of fast fashion. But that said, how does this kind of business make a profit? I've already told you that no one is making a profit off of this yet. In a standard retail model, the retailer buys the product for a cost, sells it at a much higher price, that's the markup, and pockets the rest in profit. Well, that's actually a super simplified version, and I can't let myself just pass that off to you. (laughs) I have to give you more detail. Because that profit is called gross margin dollars, And they use those gross margin dollars to pay for all of their expenses, like employees, offices, equipment, stores, warehouses, advertising, etc. But then what's left after all of that is the actual profit. It's a much lower number. The model of making profit in this, you know, for selling when you're actually selling things is pretty straightforward. Lower your expenses by paying people less and negotiating lower costs on the items you're selling, and you'll make more profit, right? But in the world of rental, that's not how it works. Now, I will tell you this. Rental platforms, all of them, offer the option of buying the clothing you're renting, often at a discounted price. And if the company has a good algorithm in place, that price will be unique to that garment and its history. How long has it been in stock? How many times has it been rented, its popularity, etc. Fun fact that might surprise you, a garment that has been rented 100 times might be more expensive to purchase than something that was just rented a handful of times because it is so popular. Kind of surprising, right? Company wants to keep that one around because it just keeps getting rented. Selling clothing to customers is part of the financial model of rental, and it's definitely a lever that rental services pull when they need to free up some cash. So like suddenly they'll offer everyone a bigger discount that they cannot resist. But if they're running into inventory shortages, they take a different approach. This happened with Rent the Runway a few years ago when they brought in way too many subscribers without enough inventory to keep them happy. So to hold on to every last garment, they reduced the discount on each garment to just a few percent in an attempt to discourage purchasing. I saw people complaining about it all over the internet. It's important to mention that in much of the research I've done, a decent chunk of customers admitted to purchasing just about every item they rented, which is pretty concerning. Buy five or six items every month. That's what most of these services offer in their standard subscription package. And soon you're buying 60 to 72 new garments each year. That's exactly what we're trying to avoid here, right? (laughs) So yes, Selling clothing is a small part of the financial model here, although like it can turn into a decent driver of revenue. But the major source of money here is subscription fees. And to a certain extent, the amount of money you will have coming in each month or year is 
pretty predictable, right? Set a target of subscribers you expect to have each month or year, whatever time period. Plan that a few will quit here and there. And so also set goals for new subscribers to come in. Of course, that can all go off the rails if you have a global pandemic and no one goes anywhere for a while or has the money to rent clothing, hashtag ripped from the headlines. But in general, it's a safe bet that if you offer decent service and enough choices for customers, you'll be good to go. Now comes the expenses. Employees, laundry chemicals, energy and water bills, and most importantly, all that shipping. Rent the Runway had to discontinue their unlimited service because they were bleeding money on all that shipping. Overall, all these expenses are kind of non-negotiable. And while you could tweak them a bit, there's not a lot of opportunity to reduce them. You could buy laundry chemicals in bulk and save a few bucks. You could pay employees as little as possible, but there are laws around that, so... (laughs) You've got to reduce costs on inventory, meaning that you want to buy clothes as cheaply as possible, which means you're going to buy fast fashion clothing as much as possible. You're going to ask brands to switch into cheaper fabrics and trims to keep the costs down. Maybe you'll keep some fancier brands in stock to keep customers on the hook. That's a strategy called the pyramid of merchandising. I could do a whole episode on that, but you might get bored. Those fancier brands are going to be a tiny part of your overall inventory. I want you to put a pin in this idea of fast fashion clothing because we'll be coming back to it. Trust me, this fast fashion clothing, it's a decision that comes back to haunt all of these rental companies. The financial model of rental says, okay, we're going to have this many customers and they'll be paying this much money every month to participate. After all of our operational expenses, we'll have this much money left. Now, you might think, okay, well, all of that money can be spent on inventory. But of course, the rental company needs to make some profit or at least have some money left over to pay off the loans they took out to build that warehouse and buy those laundry machines. So it's up to someone to determine the bare number of garments required to fulfill customer expectations. And reaching this number is part science and it's it's part art. It's also just part seeing the future, I guess. Let's say you have 50,000 customers each month. They each get to rent six garments. Well, that's 250,000 garments required to meet the demand. But customers need options and sizes. So maybe you'll want to have 10 garments available per subscriber. That means you need a total of 2.5 million items. And while that sounds like a lot, I almost, just based on my experience, don't think that that's enough. I think that customers could be disappointed. And since subscriptions are shipping in and out of the warehouse all through the month, you might want to add a little bit extra. Okay, but let's say 2.5 million items is the magical number that you have decided, because I guess you own a rental company now, congratulations, to keep in stock all the time. You're going to want to account for the items that are bought every month and therefore go out of circulation, right? And of course, there are garments that will be damaged or unwearable or lost by the shipping service. You already know that you have to bring in new items every month too. So modeling all of this will require an assumption, an assumption that will help you determine 
how much new inventory you need to bring in every month. And that assumption is how many times will each item be rented on average? This number will change over time as you get to know your customers better. Maybe you'll think 12 times, right? You're saying, okay, 12 is great because a garment can be rented out once a month for a year on average before being retired. That means some things will be rented 20 or 30 times, while others will be rented once or twice before being damaged beyond repair or purchased. And you want that to happen as infrequently as possible because that really messes up your average. If all this works out, if you planned appropriately, you'll hit that average of 12 rentals per garment. The thing is, every time a garment exceeds 12 rentals, it becomes more profitable. When it's rented only once or twice and then has to be damaged out, it becomes less profitable. In a good situation, this will motivate a rental company to repair every item and remove every stain. Get the maximum wear out of everything. From what I've read, and of course I'm going to take this with a grain of salt, Rent the Runway is fastidious about repair and stain removal because it wants to get everywhere out of a garment as it tries to become profitable. And in general, the clothing that it offers is a lot more expensive than the other rental platforms. Other companies pay a lot less attention to repair and stain removal, just really don't care that much because they're buying clothes so cheaply in the first place. And that's too bad because I do think rental has a place in the circular economy, but with some caveats in place. And we'll get to that, I promise. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. 
Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum offense authenticity, future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. I think it's important for us to examine all of the ways in which rental offers the illusion of sustainability but probably isn't delivering it. Now, before we continue, I just want to say that last year when that study, that finished study came out saying, you know, hey, it's worse for the planet to rent clothes than to just buy them and throw them away. Rent and Runway did publish its own study. And I use this in quotes that was trying to prove how much more of a sustainable option Rent the Runway is. I kind of call bullshit on it. Feel free to Google it and see for yourself. It's up there with a lot of uh, thread ups sustainability reports as well, where I'm like, oh man, who, I can tell you paid for this research. Anyway, I'm going to tell you all the ways in which rental is just not that sustainable. Okay. First, of course, there is all of the transportation, delivering the orders back and forth. However, 
Like I said earlier, there are ways to mitigate this via electric vehicles, creating hubs for drop-off and pickup so it would require less delivery vehicles out on the road. That sounds great. And also slowing down the rental process, eliminating all the services that are like Rent the Runway's unlimited plan. Furthermore, rental companies just bleed money on shipping costs because they cover each trip to and from the warehouse. If they could reduce those costs, they could probably pay their warehouse workers better and buy more high-quality, long-lasting, truly sustainable, ethical inventory. So I think there's major opportunity here to make rental more sustainable by switching up the way it ships and how it ships and how often it ships. Next, as I've already mentioned, most of these rental services are wah-wah, renting out fast fashion clothing, meaning that they are supporting an industry that exploits workers and wastes resources. If rental ever gets to be as big an industry as experts have been speculating, Rental would be propping up an industry that doesn't deserve to be supported, that shouldn't be propped up. This drive to buy fast fashion inventory, it goes back to that financial model. Since it's difficult to cut expenses like laundry and shipping, these companies focus on cutting the cost of the clothing, making fast fashion brands and vendors just too enticing to resist. It's disappointing, of course, that they aren't taking the long view of buying higher quality clothing that will last longer and therefore be rented many more times. But I can't help but think that it's part of a larger quandary for rental services that really starts with the customer. Customers want new stuff all the time. We're addicted to it. We've become accustomed to it, right? Occasionally, customers will rent the same thing more than once. But unfortunately, our brains have been fast fashionified too. We want something new all the time. We don't want to wear the same thing for multiple events. We want a new outfit for every Instagram post. And it doesn't help that rental services have swooped in to say to us, hey, we're going to let you continue that behavior, but we'll make it, in quotes, sustainable, <laughs> right? Doesn't help at all. As you know by now, I'm going to repeat this for any new listeners, in the past decade, just about every large brand and retailer has adopted the fast fashion model of doing business, overproduction, overconsumption, and exploitation. So even on a high level, the majority of brands on most rental platforms will be fast fashion. Rent the Runway ostensibly curates a higher end offering, but to be honest, there are some obvious fast fashion brands working their way in there along with some fancier brands that probably operate using the fast fashion model too. Latote, a less expensive option, is completely fast fashion brands and suppliers. Does this drive to cut the budget for inventory by renting out primarily fast fashion brands bite the rental services in the butt? and make the whole model less sustainable? Well, the answer is yes, definitely 100% OMG, so true. Often the fit and quality are not great, right, on these clothes. You know this from firsthand experience, so do I. So customers are disappointed and end up buying more new clothing anyway, defeating the whole purpose of rental in the first place. 
or they ask for replacement garments, which are shipped out and therefore increase the carbon footprint of the whole thing. And this costs rental services more money on the shipping side, which cuts into their clothing budget, right? Often these clothes are made of synthetic fabrics because they are more stain resistant and hold up better to washing. Most rental companies try to avoid natural fibers because they might shrink, they get wrinkly, so they need pressing, which, you know, you need to pay someone to do. And natural fibers can stain more easily in this setting. In fact, one thing I learned very early on in my brief career in rental was that even the fancy rental services like Rent the Runway were asking brands to produce versions of their lines in polyester because the fabrics held up longer and were less expensive. Of course, there are major drawbacks to this, right? These fabrics are made from oil, they are not biodegradable, and they shed microplastics when they're laundered. There's another variable to take into account here, and it's one that bummed me out over and over when I was working for that rental platform. Customers don't treat these garments with care. I could not believe the state in which many of these clothes return to our warehouse. Covered with barbecue sauce, drenched in rosé, missing buttons, gaping holes, sometimes shrunken to child size. It was as if a big chunk of our customers belonged to a parkour club whose regular meetups ended up at a wine bar with a barbecue buffet. Occasionally, a customer would decide to cut a pair of jeans four inches shorter or crop a t-shirt that they did not own. So many things were damaged beyond repair. Others, they could be fixed. Here's the catch, though. It's expensive to repair things and remove stains. You have to pay someone to do that, right? So if a garment wasn't that expensive in the first place, like let's say it was a dress that cost $12 because, yes, that really happens, and the zipper was broken, right? You could have one of the staff seamstresses fix it. It would take about an hour and they're paid $20 an hour. So suddenly you're spending more money on repairing this garment than you actually paid for it. If you're running a rental company because you're into sustainability, then it's a worthwhile expense. But if you're running this company to get rich or pay dividends to shareholders or make up for lost sales at your fast fashion parent brand, well, you're gonna toss that dress out and replace it with another $12 dress and save $8. Once again, rental companies are looking to keep costs as low as possible, especially when it comes to the clothing they're renting out. They could do that by buying less new stuff and offering the same items for longer, right? This would allow them to invest in higher quality, longer lasting garments. But remember, they are selling the illusion that we can continue to have tons of new clothes all the time, all without the pesky guilt of buying them ourselves. To keep that illusion going while staying in business, they're substituting cheaper fabrics and trims on more expensive brands and buying into more, less expensive fast fashion brands too. And this stuff, as you and I know well, does not stand up to a lot of wear, and it's hard to imagine that it could be rented 12 times in one year. Here's where all of this starts to really break down. Obviously, some stuff gets damaged on its first rental, and other stuff gets rented 20 or 50 times, but it still means that on average, these clothes aren't getting worn more times than you would have worn them if you owned them and were adopting a more circular model of wearing things over and over again and mending them and caring for them and then thoughtfully rehoming and reselling them when you were done with them. 
Lots of stuff gets damaged. Holes, rips, runs, missing buttons, broken zippers, and it's too expensive to pay someone to fix it. The same goes for stain removal, pilling on sweaters, things that somehow get smelly in a way that laundry can't fix. Yes, that happens. And as I've already mentioned, people sometimes wash and shrink garments while they are renting them. The industry isn't required to report the amount of product they're damaging out, but I want to assure you that it is a surprising amount, especially for the rental brands that focus on more day-to-day clothing, mass brands, and fast fashion brands. And that's why a lot of these platforms, including Rent the Runway, are getting into the resale secondhand game because they want to recoup the losses of all that damaged product. Now, let's think about the laundry. Most of these rental services use a mixture of dry cleaning, which, by the way, is terrible for the planet, even in a closed-loop system, and wet washing, which is literally massive industrial washing machines and detergent. They clean every single garment when it comes back, even if it was never worn. That's what they have to do. I'm, I'm not angry at them for that. I get it. But a lot of chemicals and water get wasted in the process. Furthermore, it's up to the workers who receive the return rentals to sort them for various wash cycles and dry clean processes to ensure that more garments aren't damaged. But guess what? Mistakes get made a lot, like a lot. I mean, we're talking about a huge volume of laundry sorting right here. I know that Latote damaged a ton of inventory a few years ago by overfilling washing machines. Their inventory wasn't sufficient to meet subscriber demand, so they were trying to move clothing through the laundry part of the process as fast as possible to get it back into the hands of consumers. It turned into a disaster. I saw people complaining about receiving clothing that had shrunk, bled, or lost its shape because Latote continued to rent out these damaged clothes. Oh yeah, this is a good moment to mention that part of my research, both for my job in rental and this episode, was joining lots of Facebook groups and subreddits for people who rent clothing. I also saw Rent the Runway having similar laundry and repair issues a few years ago when their subscriber base was exceeding inventory availability as well. Customers received dirty, stained, shrunk, damaged clothing because the company was trying to push the items through the process too fast. I'm still haunted by both the images and the visceral sensation of reading a woman's post about receiving a dress that clearly had had miso soup spilled all over it, the way it smelled after being shipped around in plastic, and just the way the stain looked. It I haven't really had miso soup since then, actually, <laughs> even though I love miso. Anyway, there's a ton more we could cover in this episode if you all ever want a part two on rental. Let me know if you do. We could talk about how Rent the Runway treated its workers in the early days of COVID, spoiler, badly and recklessly. We could talk about the impact of the pandemic on rental, although it's rebounding. And we could talk about how Latote is suing Urban Outfitters for stealing its proprietary secrets to launch its own rental platform, Newly. The allegation is that Urban Outfitters expressed interest in purchasing Latote, did weeks of due diligence research that included learning all about all of Latote's systems and processes, and then backed out at the last minute, launching their own rental service instead. I'll share some links in the show notes for you to read about all of these things and so much more. And maybe we can do a follow-up episode or an Instagram live where I can discuss those items with you. If you're interested in that, holler at me. My own experience in working in rental, I'm going to be honest, was pretty traumatic. 
Like some really bad stuff happened to me at that job that I'm still coping with. It was a very toxic, dysfunctional culture. And working on this episode definitely dredged a lot of that back up for me. I woke up in the middle of the night last night and found myself running through all the messed up stuff I witnessed and experienced at that job. I felt angry, sick, and sad. But I'm glad that I had the experience of working in rental. It taught me even more about how the clothing industry has changed for the worse, how rental is, and how it could be. And most importantly, it was a big lesson in greenwashing and and spotting it. Now that we've spent all this time discussing rental and breaking down how it works, it's time to answer our question. Is rental a sustainable option? Notice how I didn't ask, is rental the most sustainable option? Because we already know the answer there is no. And we also know by now that there are no clear black and white, good, bad, best, worst, most, least answers when it comes to sustainability. There just aren't. And when someone's selling you that idea, they are misleading you, probably intentionally. Here's my biggest issue with rental. It only continues to reinforce that stale consumerist idea that we need to wear new clothes all the time, especially for every Instagram post or wedding or birthday or picnic. It says that we need constant newness and we need to participate in every single trend because if we miss out, we're missing out on life. Rental encourages us to always want more, 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 and new, 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 especially as more rental services have popped up to provide us with day-to-day clothing, whether it's sweatpants, jeans, work clothes, workout clothes, you name it, it's a steady flow of clothes. The only sustainable way forward is true circularity, aka slow fashion. It means buying fewer brand new clothes, shifting to a secondhand first mindset, and wearing these things over and over again. It means caring for your clothes to make them last as long as possible for you and for the next wearer. It means mending and stain removal. It means being a proud outfit repeater. And it means thoughtfully rehoming our clothing when we no longer can or will wear it. Do I think rental has a place in our lives? Sure. Is it the solution? No. I think renting special occasion clothes is a great idea since we wear them so rarely. Listener Iris, hi Iris, told me a while back that it is very common to rent a wedding dress in Mexico. And I think mainstreaming the rental of wedding and bridesmaid dresses is genius. More of that, please. If you have a job where you have to wear professional clothing and you don't have any of that kind of stuff and it would be a huge investment, then rental is a great option for you too. If you need specific clothes for a trip, like you live in a warm place but are traveling somewhere cold where you'll need a proper winter coat or sweaters, by all means, please rent them. I think renting maternity clothing is an amazing idea too because these things are in and out of our lives so fast. But I don't think you should be renting clothing regularly. I don't think you should be getting new clothes all the time. And that is what rental offers you. But also... Maybe you don't need to rent 
any of these clothes because maybe you can borrow them from a friend, a family member, or a neighbor. Dustin and I have been rewatching Mad Men, and one thing that has struck me It's kind of just like happening in the background is how often I see women loaning one another clothing on that show. And I love that. The other thing that has struck me about Mad Men is what a toxic character Don Draper is, even if he is super sexy. I'm actually going to say that I'm really concerned that I didn't notice that on my first viewing. (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. But if I had all the free time in the world, I would have a podcast about Mad Men, another about 90 Day Fiance, and a third about Rock of Love. Oh, and there would be a fourth podcast about The Doors film, directed by Oliver Stone, which I've seen no less than 50 times because I always watch it while I'm sick. I don't know why. It's not even that good. I don't know. (laughs) I don't even like The Doors. (laughs) Anyway, back to rental. There are services right now that operate in a peer-to-peer way, much like borrowing clothing, and I hope to see more of that coming when we talk about regular big old rental services, I have a lot of strong feelings. Ultimately, rental has achieved a level of success because it promises us that we don't have to make a change in order to save our planet. And you know what? That's just not true. We're all gonna have to make changes in our habits, our society, and our larger economic systems. But we're here to do that, right? I know that change sounds scary, but it often feels really great when it happens. Rental can be a part of the circular economy, but it has to change its motivations. It has to change the way it works. It has to change its priorities. I think that could happen. I know when your mission is profits over everything else, things get muddled and mixed up. I know that a sustainable ethical business model can be profitable, but it's going to look a whole lot different than anything we see right now. I also think changing the way our society looks at clothing and all of our behaviors around stuff and style and new stuff and new style, that's all going to have to change alongside it. But it can happen. It will happen if we're all in this together. Okay, get out there and wear something that you've already worn many, many times before. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, hosted, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. And more importantly, tell your friends to listen too. That's that's how we change. We create change. We do it all together. If you would like to support my work here at Close Horse, please check out patreon.com slash podcast to learn more. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.